public data that pertains to individuals is more harmful when we're talking about marginalized communities um, and having traits exposed that can be used to, to disenfranchise them, whether that's their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status, their region, their primary language, their citizenship. Um, and so if we want to create a more equitable world, a more level playing field in Web3, perhaps maybe for our very first act, we don't replicate the systems of disenfranchisement that we know to already exist. Welcome to another episode of Built on Web 3. Today, we are so excited and so lucky to chat with the one and only Evan McMullen, the CEO and founder of Disco.xyz. Evan, welcome to the show. GM, GM, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. As I was doing research, I noticed, and you just mentioned, you might be from Northeast Ohio. Is that correct? That is indeed correct. <laughs> I grew up in Hudson. Were you near there? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yes. Um, we would play Hudson in sports when I was a kid. Oh yeah? Where did you grow up? I grew up um, just east of Cleveland um, in a town called Chesterland in Geauga County. Oh, okay. Vaguely familiar. I think we did play you in sports. <laughs> Amazing, small See, world. Nerds are multifaceted too. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I and I assume uh, you're flying out there for the holidays, so uh, I hear it's going to be cold. So we'll uh, we'll have to bundle up. <laughs> Perfect internet weather, I say. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I want to start this off kind of talking about how we can better explain Web three to people not in this space. So we're all going home for the holidays. Our parents will inevitably ask us what we're doing, what this podcast is about. And I want to kind of get your take on this. So um, our Thomas and I's day job is we run an agency, a software agency. And last week I uh, held a Web3 101 thing for our team. And I challenged myself not to use the word NFT, decentralized, or any of these words to like confuse everybody uh, in explaining what Web3 is. And I went the, the Chris Dixon route where I basically just said it's about digital ownership, right? And the feedback I got was good. But I think the piece I'm missing is how to make Web3 big, how to make that aha moment. And so my question to you is, is there anything you've found yourself using in explaining Web3 that kind of sparks that aha moment, that big idea of really getting people to grasp what Web3 is and how big it can be? So when I think about Web3, obviously all of us have different definitions. But um, at Disco, when we talk about Web3, we think about the universe unlocked with public ledgers and private keys. And so from a verbal perspective, this means basically nothing to our friends and family. So we need to show them, you know, what are the outcomes and experiences made possible with this kind of infrastructure? Um, and so one of my favorite things to do is invite people to tell me about the pieces of content, the books, movies, or television shows that informed what they thought the future would be like when they were kids. And so much of these memories um, is wound up in, you know, automation, in personalization, in robots, robot sidekicks, and not having to fill out forms and stand in lines in order to enjoy personalized experiences, um, being able to move seamlessly from one space to another and have those environments and vehicles and um, spaces respond to you. And so, uh, you know, at Disco, when we think about the near-term future, we talk about throwing a super fun party at Disco Disco at the Louvre in Paris and inviting everybody to come um, where the only thing they need to bring with them is their Disco data backpack. So that allows them to move seamlessly through the doors of their building, a ride share, you know, border screenings, health screenings, security screenings, airport screenings, um, you know, being able to move seamlessly through all of these spaces to a hotel, to the door of the VIP room at the event where you're enjoying a personalized experience. Because um, our definition of the metaverse is your ability to move freely from one space to another um, without the need to explicitly state any of your preferences, um, to enjoy personalized experiences that are built around you without first having to ask. 
Um, and that's also why we're called Disco, because we believe you are the multifaceted center of the party, just, just like this disco ball. And you should be able to reflect your data and your identity to the world however you decide. You're a different person when you show up um, you know, with your family, with your friends, in professional settings, in public, in private. And your ability to selectively decide how you want to present yourself, which part of yourself you want to reflect, is, you know, is very much um, a core principle of your individualism. And so when we talk about, you know, the, the desire to remove friction, to fill out fewer forms, to wait in fewer lines, to, um, you know, be able to take your Uber rating with you to, uh, to a new rideshare, to be able to enjoy um, an undercollateralized loan based on reputation you've built out of a financial system, these kinds of examples become much more tangible, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So going on, the, before we get into how Disco is helping all this possible, going on that um, that example of going to the Louvre and going to this party, how could I, how could that experience become more personal if I can take my verified credentials, my pieces of my data backpack with me? So you can imagine that um, being able to line up your itinerary beforehand and have a bunch of preset preferences that you don't need to articulate, such as the time of arrival of a rideshare to pick you up to go to the airport, being um, you know spaced to your preference of how early you like to arrive, the day's traffic, and the anticipated uh, number of people at the airport, or even for your particular flight. Um, being able to anticipate the type of rideshare, what sort of music, the temperature, the you know seating arrangement, how much luggage you're going to have, um, in addition to um, you know your language preferences and your pronoun preferences. Um, so really granular sorts of things like a. a you know, a settings page um, for your experience of the whole world can be articulated beforehand such that when you interact with different services that can be personalized or can be, um, you know, can you can re- remove some administrivia, um, you're able to have a much more seamless way to access those kinds of things, especially in tandem, coordinating one with another. Uh, because, of course, human coordination is what we're all about here anyway. Oh, yes. <laughs> so Disco um, is helping all this happen, right? And you're solving some really, really important issues um, that Web2 has not been able to solve. And I think what you guys are doing is going to be foundational to Web3. And can you kind of lay the foundation here and paint us a picture of the problems that we're seeing today in Web2 that Disco is then addressing to help create this picture of the future? So right now, when you use an application Web2, when you visit Instagram or Google um, or even use a collaboration tool like Notion or GitHub, when you're hanging out inside of that application, you're doing various activities, clicking things, creating data, writing documents, collaborating with friends, um, all of the data that pertains to your interactions in that space um, is sort of saved within the confines of that application or perhaps a related application ecosystem such as the, you know, the, the Google universe, the Apple universe. Um, and so the data that you create that data exhaust or trail of information that you leave as a result of your actions is sort of siloed to that app ecosystem um, or to that individual application itself. And so you find yourself uh, interacting with new apps and having to fill out onboarding forms just about every time you interact, um, not being able to have reusable forms, um, sort of like autofill experiences universally across the board for, and certainly not for more than just um, being able to fill out explicit form fields. So your preference for things like light or dark mode or a primary language um, don't necessarily travel with you. And so you continue to have to update them. Uh, certainly, if you work in the crypto space, you may have had to fill out some um, event bread forms, some partyful forms, some RSVP forms to allow you to attend various different events. Uh, very rarely is it, is it easy to be able to reuse your information um, to populate uh, to populate those kinds of things. Um, but also it's, um, it's challenging to be able to capture proofs that you indeed were there and to carry those with you over time in a way that's going to be, um, you know, low cost, simple, seamless, and, uh, and independently verifiable. Um, so you have a pretty good understanding that when I carry this proof that is indeed written about me. So does this go, um, does Disco introduce any sort of centralization, or does it actually empower more of a decentralized uh, like ecosystem? Um, I guess, like, how does Disco plug into everything? 
So that's a really great question because it invites us to contemplate what do we mean when we say decentralization? Do we mean physically decentralized infrastructure that is bound to a single network? Do we mean the portability of data and its ability to move freely from one uh, platform storage to another so that we do not experience platform lock-in? Do we mean decentralization and that no um, you know, single party has the ability to impact or influence it at scale? Um, and so there are a lot, there's a lot of nuance in this definition. Uh, when we think about the role of data that's written about a person or an organization, individual party, could even be an entity like a dog or a car, um, but we think about the sovereignty, especially of those, you know, the human beings sitting behind those keys. When we talk about self-sovereignty at Disco, we mean um, an ecosystem in which the subject of data has the most control over the data that describes it. And so that doesn't mean complete control and total control, of course, that just means more control than any other party. Um, and so what we are implying here is a logical centralization of control around the data subject, around the person that it's written about. Um, but that can also be paired with a physical decentralization of the places where that data is actually stored. Um, so different kinds of data can be appropriate to be stored in different sorts of places based on the amount of availability we need, um, the sort of mutability or ephemerality of that data, our need for it to persist or to go away or change and evolve. Um, and so all of those different variables can influence the best way to store or stash that data, especially, you know, depending on how often you're retrieving it, using it, validating it. Um, and so it's really important for us to ensure that no matter what, um, we prioritize the sovereignty and informed consent of individual users so that they are able to understand and interact with the work product that is their data. You know, after all, it only exists as a result of their actions and the choices that they make um, interacting with these various different different applications. And so we can also create a much more business efficient environment on the app side if everybody's not storing redundant copies of information that all take up the same amount of space and all need to be stashed and stashed somewhere and, you know, referenced on a, a non-zero basis. Um, and so we're able to um, hopefully explore uh, better GDPR compliance um, and not having to worry about things like the physical storage and insurance and protection of duplicate copies of data that otherwise could very simply be provided with a reusable credential. From an app uh, development perspective, just out of curiosity, how so how would that work with what you guys have built? So if, if I'm building an app and I don't want to just have a form there and I want to use someone's data backpack and use their preferences, how do I access that as a developer? So as a developer, you can occupy a couple different roles or your application can occupy a couple different roles in the life cycle of a credential um, or the life cycle of the data that describes a person. You can be the kind of party that is issuing that data that is handing over statements written about that individual user or organization that they can then carry with them to other spaces or you're a relying party or a verifier. Your application is looking to rely upon data that comes to the front door of your app. So Sean, this is the example that, that you just outlined. Um, so for both of these app partnerships, we have to think about um, you know, what is the interaction that they're really trying to achieve. So in terms of issuance, it's about how do I select the right credential schema? How do I create the right form so it's W3C compliant and resolvable? And how do I ensure that that's issued and signed in a way that the keys that present it, that sign or issue it, um, are uh, belong to um, a party that has authority over the contents it contains, so then it can be useful. Um, and then on the verifier side, we've got to ask uh, who signed this credential? Um, is it valid or valid for the purposes that I need? So um, is the cryptography intact? Is the signature sort of resolvable as expected? Um, is the date of validity intact? Has it not expired or not? been revoked. Um, so uh, additionally, what, a little bit of nuance here is that even if a credential has expired or been revoked, it can still be used for certain purposes. So you can imagine even if your driver's license is expired, it can still be useful to prove that you are over a certain age. Um, mm. So we've got a lot of flexibility in the way we can interpret this data. Um, but a really nice thing about um, the Disco ecosystem is that we make these sorts of nuanced questions pretty easy to answer. Um, we have an API that allows applications to validate credentials that a user presents. Um, 
as and call those credentials that are related to a user's given public address. So uh, make it easy to access and then um, analyze those credentials uh, and ensure that they are indeed the droids that you're looking for, the qualifications or traits that you're seeking to uh, unlock access to an experience or um, to be able to provide a given service. Um, and then uh, this sort of more holistic view of what the data is allows you to define on your end, you know, what are the rules that we have in our community and our app and our ecosystem? Um, how is it that we make sense of this data that's being presented? And then on the issuance side and sort of like credential management um, and resolution, client-side resolution side, um, we're building out our SDK. Uh, we're also really excited to have a schema builder capability um, that will allow anyone to mm. envision a new kind of credential, whatever cool. that might be, whether that's a proof of Vibes, a proof that you came to my dinner party, um, a proof that uh, that you know I vouch for you to date one of my friends, whatever those things are, um, you know, probably more likely non-financial um, kinds of contributions <laughs> to DAOs. Uh, but whatever those are, um, folks are are going to be able to define their own with the simplicity of creating a Google poll. So not having to write code um, and uh, be careful about um, structure and sort of spec compliance um, as we currently have to today. Okay, that's interesting. So will this be like an open marketplace of schemas or like does there have to be like be consensus of a cons of a schema or can anyone create multiple schemas for the same thing? So anyone can create as many schemas as they would like to, and that is the beauty of open standards. However, we can achieve some really awesome network effects if we're able to coordinate different organizations issuing and resolving schemas in a shared understanding and shared language. So all the schemas don't necessarily have to be the same, but there needs to be some shared understanding of what they represent and the validity of their issuers. Um, so a really fortunate activity that's happening right now is that over at the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, the good people who run the internet, um, they uh, not only have presented us with these tech specs for decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, but there are also some really inspiring leaders in the identity space who have kicked off working groups um, to address just this need for a mm. global repository of schemas similar to schema.org, but explicitly focused on verifiable credentials and even the sort of preferred or allowed lists of issuers or signers that represent or govern a given, a given schema. So you can imagine that a group of universities is going to be the appropriate party um, to be associated with diploma credentials that pertain to their institutions. Hmm. But then if the university, like if a different university wanted to create their own schema or like add on to it, they totally could too. Meanwhile, utilizing like the standard schema that was for these universities, right? So the nice thing about schemas is that you can issue the same ones, identical sort of schemas and fill them out in different ways um, than other institutions. You can evolve a schema that already exists and base the creation of a new one upon an existing structure. Um, and really the choice of schema is important insofar as it is relevant to the parties that will rely upon that credential in the future. So ensuring that the folks who want to be able to resolve and re rely upon the data that you're encompassing in a given credential, um, you know, if you're prioritizing that usability, that portability, and wanting to optimize for the number or for the for the most verifying parties possible, um, then you're probably more than likely going to choose a schema that um, is aligned with other institutions already. Got it. Yep, that makes sense. So kind of taking a step back from more of like a user side perspective, can you kind of walk us through what the experience of someone is interacting with their data backpack and even creating their data backpack? For sure. So Disco is a bring your own keys experience right now, although we're looking forward to um, inviting users into a custodial data backpack experience in the future. We can talk about that later. But for now, uh, we invite users to bring their um, EVM compatible keys to the Disco web app um, and then connect their uh, wallet with one click as they would normally a Web3 dApp. On the back end, we'll generate a decentralized identifier or data backpack for you um, and then uh, invite you to fill out your profile one last time. 
So choosing a profile picture, a brief bio, creating a linkage that you own that's independently verifiable between your data backpack and your Twitter handle, your DNS record or website, your Discord handle, um, and then you're up and running, being able to interact with a Disco web app that feels a little bit like a personal settings page and Apple Wallet all wrapped into one. So your data backpack is a collection of credentials, rectangular JPEGs that you self-custody um, that allow you to unlock different privileges and also um, you know, interact with, with other users in a social manner. So you can send and receive GM credentials, which are kind of like Facebook-style pokes, and snaps uh, with other users. Snaps are similar to kudos. They allow you to recognize another um, another data backpack owner for their unique contributions, immaculate vibes, et cetera. Um, and then we also have a number of organizations that are issuing credentials of membership and good standing to the folks in their squads. Uh, and so all of those incoming credentials will show up for you in your inbox, um, just a, a, an array of different JPEGs, rectangular JPEGs, um, that uh, if you pop them open, um, you can expand them and see the decentralized identifiers or data backpack addresses of the party that issued it, the party that received it, that's you, uh, as well as pop open the full um, JWT token. So being able to interrogate it all the way down to the studs if you so desire. Uh, and then this interface also, as I mentioned, makes it easy to be able to send credentials to other users. Um, and then you can also uh, write some about yourself. So you can fill up your data backpack with some statements that you write about yourself. So this includes those preferences around um, app experience, like light or dark mode, language, pronouns, um, things like t-shirt size, even zodiac sign. Um, and so we're, uh, we're really looking forward to soon integrating some other credential schemas around achievement. So things like certificates of completion, graduation, and educational cohort participation. So if I'm understanding this correctly, then there's kind of the subset of credentials that are self-issued, that are um, information about myself that only I could decide on. And then there's a set of credentials that are issued by other parties like a university or, um, I don't know, I play in a volleyball league and they say I did it. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And often we'll differentiate those types of credentials as self-attested credentials being the ones that only I can decide about myself, that I can say about myself. Um, and those are largely preferences or sort of personal settings for how you would like to experience the metaverse. So I think this is a kind of like a neat segue into another topic um, because Sean and I did a deep dive on Disco. And we, by the way, it was like amongst our favorite. And we... Um, something really interesting about Disco is how you have to give consent that you like these credentials, this stuff that's in your data backpack is something that you accept too versus someone just sending you random stuff and spam, whether that's like legal or illegal content. So love like a quick overview of that for our listeners. Um, but then my question specifically is around what about the things um, that you did that might like maybe weren't so good for example like a speeding ticket um or maybe you uh had like an accident and you don't want that to show up in your in your data backpack for like insurance records but it is something that happened um so it's like i can i can see like the positive things but what about the negative things too that might actually happen with that Great question. So when we think about, you know, how we deliberately curate and, for, and present information about ourselves in the real world right now, we have a pretty incredible degree of control over how that happens when we understand that it's happening. But when we interact with applications and services, there's this whole separate conversation happening behind our backs, above our heads, where applications are, are exchanging data about us that we don't have a lot of awareness about um, or ability to, to intervene in. Uh, and so this is a double-edged sword. There are great benefits of this in terms of you know, automation, the fact that we've gotten this far as a society in terms of being able to anticipate the kinds of things you want to order from McDonald's at 4 o'clock in the morning on an app. But um, we also don't have the ability to enjoy a lot of the value that comes with uh, aggregating and reusing and securing the data that describes us and you know, the way that we prefer to move through the world. Um, so what's really interesting about um, Web3 public ledgers, decentralized uh, networks like Ethereum and Bitcoin, um, is that the censorship resistance and transparency they enable 
also necessarily requires an absence of consent at the wallet layer. So in the you know EVM ecosystem, I cannot reject uh, sort of out, using an out of the box uh, key pair, let's say from something like MetaMask. I cannot reject any token ID that another wallet user wants to map to my public key. If you know my wallet address, you know how to send something to me. Uh, and of course, we could create all kinds of elaborate permission structures around this, um, you know, smart contracts that intercept tokens and uh, and things like that. Um, but it, you know, although that is also true, there is merit in observing the fact that the default system, as it exists, is, exists is one that does not involve consent when accepting public assets being associated with your address. Now, there are ways that you can dissociate unwanted assets. Um, you can pay a gas fee to burn that asset, but now we got to pay money to get rid of things that we didn't want anyway, sort of like um, you know, having to pay a fee to have someone scrape an unwanted bumper sticker off of your car. Um, but, uh, but I think there is a lot more flexibility and native, natively well-suited um, you know, features to verifiable credentials to describe um, a lot of the data that pertains to us as individuals, us as human beings. Um, and so we're able to manage with a little bit more discretion um, which data assets we want to hang on to and present and which we don't. Whereas if someone's looking at our public address on a blockchain, it's really hard to decide which of these assets um, did Thomas and Sean want, which of these assets were airdropped, gifted, sent to them, spammed to them that were unwanted. Uh, so there's a lot of additional context that you've got to provide around public assets when it pertains to how they got mapped to a given public key. Um, you know, additionally, the inability to curate um, means that we put a lot of pressure on the front ends of applications that display our on-chain activity. So we've got to hide in each application separately <laughs> a siloed mm -hmm. set of, um, of you know, unwanted assets. Now, of course, this is another fun solution where verifiable credentials could come in and you could mark the assets with credentials that you don't want to see and be able to carry that from app to app. But, oh, you know, interesting. totally beside the point. Um when we talk about negative reputation, I, you know, I think that that's a really valuable characteristic for us to contemplate in any identity system. And I'm so excited for the day when we arrive, when that's going to be, you know, of the utmost importance up front. Like we are still on party invitations, <laughs> you know, we're, uh, we're not quite at like the carceral state and speeding tickets yet. And for yep. my part, I'm very excited to welcome many more users into the web three ecosystem before we start appealing to to them with the desirable new experience of decentralized backends for speeding tickets, but I would prefer <laughs> to throw parties first. Well, I'm glad you're here doing that because yeah, nobody would get in Web3 if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, you know, we're not immediately eliminating the existence of law enforcement. Like, you know, let's try to address one at a time the daily experiences in people's lives where we can remove friction and add delight and value. And there are infinity hypotheticals that we can, you know, concern ourselves with when it comes to much higher gravity user data. And we'll get there. We'll get there very soon. But we will not enjoy the privilege of considering the consequences of, you know, our far-reaching actions around sensitive data until we first figure out how to have fun in Web3 and the metaverse. And for those who would like to first jump to systems of punishment and negative reputation as we as we take our very first steps in building this new plane, I invite us to take a step back together and think about how can we make the space a little bit more welcoming, at least for its very start. Yep. Yeah, this I had a tweet here pulled up. Um, I think you retweeted it. And I think it was a quote from you. It was unclear. But it was the permanence of our public chains are unintentionally diminishing the freedom for disenfranchised communities by publicizing the very traits used to discriminate against them. And I feel like that's exactly what we're talking about here, where, you know, you could get sent these soulbound NFTs and you have no choice in the matter and it doxes you basically. And people know more about you than you want them to know about you. And it and from the sounds of it, Disco completely solves that by bringing these credentials off chain. That is absolutely all me. I feel really strongly about this. That um, you know, often 
public data that pertains to individuals um, is more harmful when we're talking about marginalized communities um, and having traits exposed that can be used to, um, to yeah, to disenfranchise them, to you know, limit their options, whether that's their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status, their region, their primary language, their citizenship. Um, and so, if we want to create a more equitable world, a more level playing field in Web three, perhaps maybe for our very first act we don't replicate the systems of disenfranchisement that we know to already exist. Yep. Do you have any specific examples of that that you're, you're looking forward to the day that this comes to fruition that web three and disco could solve? So I think about a lot on many time horizons, but the first that I'm particularly excited about is shortening the time of onboarding into a community or organization. Right now, when you join a DAO, it's like your first day on the internet. You have to hang out in the Discord, participate, contribute, introduce yourself to everybody, kind of farm that reputation. And there's a lot of merit in coming in hot to a community and finding your niche and contributing. But once you make those contributions, once you're a core part of a guild, you're writing the newsletter, organizing events, and hosting Twitter spaces, it's really difficult to capture proofs of a job well done when you do that work. And so very often, if you want to participate in another DAO, perhaps take on another role or even move to a new organization, when you show up to their Discord on day one, it's like your first day on the internet again and the whole Groundhog Day repeats. And so being able to capture proofs of your work and your contribution, whether those are your you know, individual preferences and participation in roles or the way that you've shown up for your organization or community, being able to bring that with you and show it as a proof of contribution to new jobs, to other DAOs, to new organizations. Um, that proof of accountability can be used in so many creative ways by apps also. It's a high assurance anti-civil you know, proxy that you're probably not a bot if you're showing up to Twitter spaces <laughs> weekly and you're a good contributor and you always bring pizza or whatever. Um, and so uh, so, you know, I'm really looking forward to defining um, with great granularity the different kinds of contributions that organizations are excited to keep track of and allowing individual contributors to take custody of those kinds of proofs um, so that we can lower the switching costs of moving from one space and community to another in Web3 and start to see the kind of portability that we've always been promised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we uh, interviewed George um, from Commonwealth that you introduced us to, and it was an awesome conversation about DAOs and DAO tooling. What are some, and I think you guys are working with Boys Club on like your beta here. So what, what are some credentials that you're starting to see being issued within a DAO and for work people that are doing within a DAO? So we are so proud and excited to be working with Boys Club. And the very first credential that they kicked off with is actually the most popular one. And what we see is sort of the anchor credential, not only in our growth strategy, but also in the strategy of so many communities. Uh, So this initial membership credential attests to an individual's membership and good standing of that organization. So this proof is private by default, can be revoked or set to expire, um, and it is legible to or can be resolved by or the signature can be checked by more than 150 different kinds of keys. So Ethereum keys, Bitcoin keys, keys that are derived from you know PGP, email, all kinds of different stuff. So it's very universally accessible information should the holder decide that they want to share it. Um, this credential can be used to access Google collaboration tools like Google polls or slides or documents, that kind of thing, um, GitHub repositories, uh, chat channels on Telegram and Discord, as well as role titles, um, discounts, and uh, access to exclusive merchandise on Shopify, um, as well as access to privileged on-chain logic. So gated NFT minting appropriate only for that membership credential holder or accessible only for that membership credential holder, as well as um, we're starting to experiment with permissioned DeFi pools. Um, So how might we have a DeFi pool where you can only deposit or interact with that smart contract um, if you have certain credentials off-chain? So being able to have a single little file, just a JSON blob, um, that you can carry around and interact in so many different spaces. Oh, and I almost forgot, you can also um, present that credential for verification to access physical spaces. So for events, parties, um, even secure uh, physical locations where you want to keep track of who's in that space. Um, being able to have uh, an individual asset that has virtually no marginal cost to create and is so universally um, valuable 
available across so many different tools and planes. I'm just really excited to build out even more capabilities as these communities grow and um, seek integrations to have that same sort of point of access or combination of access controls throughout their ecosystem. So as we add more roles and more types of credentials uh, pertaining to their contributions and participation, then we'll be able to have even more nuanced access control to all of these different spaces. I think it's amazing and how like literally an infinite amount of ways that Disco can be used across like DAOs to businesses to governments and so forth, um, personal preferences. Where do you think you're going to be, f are, are you going to pick a particular focus like DAOs? Um, because that does seem like it's such a huge potential of the future. Um, and then the other question I had was, What's the business model behind Disco? Like, do you have any benefit to working with one type of organization or a kind of area than another? Or, and, and how do you make money? So to um, address your second question first, um, we are currently experimenting with how we can contribute value to the application ecosystem, um, as well as our, our end users. So by better understanding how much risk we are removing from those applications, how much frustration and time, complexity and drop-off, um, we're then going to determine which parts of the flow we think have the most value, add the most value, and represent services that we can charge for. So my conjecture is that um, relying parties, applications that verify data, it's brought to their front door that they otherwise would have to request and store um, will uh, will participate in a tiered subscription structure. We'll always have a free tier for our DGENs and our builders, um, but okay. we definitely see an opportunity to have an API call-based business here. Um, also, in the future, we're really excited about um, better enabling an ecosystem of discoverability, having the disco tech or a dApp store, essentially, of different places where you can discover um, experiences that that are, will be more personalized based on the credentials that you've just obtained or interacted with in your data backpack. So being able to bridge the gap of finding places to go hang out in Web3 and things to do with your keys that are going to be personalized and interesting, um, but not necessarily in a way that relies only upon funding your wallet. Um, and then, you know, when we think about sort of how we how we interact with this ecosystem all together as users and as you know issuing and relying parties, we we really think about what is that holistic journey life of the life cycle of a credential. How can we ensure that we're bringing the maximum value to the needs of the applications on both sides um, while respecting the informed consent? privacy and participation of the subject of data, the human beings moving in between all of these coordination tools. Love it. I don't know what Thomas said that made me think of this question, but sorry to go a little more negative here, but I was just thinking about the security of data backpacks and kind of how um, Disco is involved in that, um, I guess from a decentralization question as well. But like if for example, you know how like FBI goes to Apple and they say, give me this data and Apple says no and then everyone's mad at Apple. If the FBI came to Disco and said, give me this person's private credential, is that even possible for you guys to be forced to do that? So your data with Disco as it exists right now is encrypted against your keys by default and stored on the ceramic network. And so um, you, as, an, as the subject of that data, the owner and controller of it, as well as the owner and controller of the private key that um, oversees its encryption, uh, Disco has no ability to intervene between you and your data. Um, we could receive that request and you know politely ask you or let you know that it's been made, <laughs> um, but we have no ability to seize and decrypt your data and share it with other parties. Love it. And are there any, like, what is the biggest security risk then? Um, like, what, what, what are hackers going to try to poke their holes into here? Can someone spoof my identity and, and spoof my credentials? So we eat with our eyes first, of course. And so whatever we see um, has a pretty significant bearing on the information that we believe to be true. So as with all social phishing and UI-based misleading you know, journeys intended to trick us, uh, we do have some amount of risk because, of course, we're consuming this information through our eyeballs. Now, there are all kinds of trust cues that we're really excited about introducing and rolling out in the coming months that will help to um, alleviate some of the concerns and allow for um, an individual to 
interrogate an interaction um, a little bit further than they can traditionally so that they can feel confidence in, in you know, what the choices that they're making uh, inside of the app. But um, I think we, again, hit a bottleneck when we talk about security around private key management. And so we're particularly excited about exploring some of the unique properties of did documents. Did documents are like the decentralized link tree or set of directions or service endpoints for how to interact with the decentralized identifier, data backpack in our world. Um, and one of those capabilities for some decentralized identifier methods is the ability to rotate keys. So key rotation means that we can start off with a custodial or semi-custodial experience. We can rotate the keys that sit behind the public identifier, and we can allow um, that individual or organization to ride off into the sunset as an independent, self-custodial, bankless entity, um, you know, owning and controlling their data backpack and their assets. Uh, and so for that gentle onboarding, where we don't necessarily need to start off with private key management, but we can work up to it, um, that does introduce a lot of uh, potential um, you know, concern as we as we address an even larger market. Yep, got it. So I want to take the last like 10 or so minutes here really to talk about use cases and to try to paint a picture of what this world could look like um, with disco backpacks everywhere. So what do you think the the first experience someone like our parents will have uh, using their verified verifiable credentials? So if your parents are uh, are up and running with their own private keys, it's likely that They're the not. first credential they'll <laughs> receive is a membership credential. Even outside of that, as we start to um, welcome more and more users um, with you know varying levels of familiarity with the underlying technology and sort of independent self-custody, um, I think that membership credentials of one form or another are highly likely to be the first that they interact with. So whether those are credentials of employment that attest to the fact that they work somewhere, whether those are credentials of uh, membership in, in a physical club um, or a group of, or organization, um, credentials as the jumping off point of of access across environments to different groups and communities, I think will continue to be a really strong first experience. Um, from a use case of like developers utilizing Disco, and uh, I was thinking about the business model too, which I'm a fan of. I like that um, on like the per call basis. Um, will the business model? Um, Will you have a very fluid and direct relationship to developers such that like we don't need to go through this? Like if I if you wanted to create a financial app today and you needed to use Plaid, for example, to, you know, like hook up the bank accounts and all this other stuff, it's a process to get that. Is it going to be way faster with Disco and kind of like an automatic, like per usage kind of like debit almost um, to the developer for just like each micro transaction for each API call like that, such that you eliminate all the kind of headache with getting set up, just like you're trying to make it easier for users to use Disco to onboard to, you know, forms and stuff? So we actually think a lot about, and the feedback that we've gotten so far has actually looked at these sort of microtransaction-based interactions as perhaps more cumbersome, um, and especially for um, you know for enterprise applications that are um, you know thinking about their their own sort of financial relationship with their vendors and and parties they rely upon. Um, and so we're exploring more of a tiered rate-limited subscription model where we um, will have uh, you. Know, options for free participation as well as a you know virtually unlimited uncapped um, credential factory uh, or verifier factory um, for those parties that are interacting at scale so our objective and of course we'll be really flexible with these models we're always you know learning and experimenting but our objective is to remove as much friction as possible from the experience of our builders as well as the experience of you know those running the, the business teams associated with their apps and services so I'm I'm definitely 100% disco pilled, and I'm very bullish on this future. Um, but I'm curious: Are you seeing any Web two companies start to adopt verifiable credentials? Because I'm just thinking of maybe like a Spotify, for example, in in this world where they they can give me a credential or um, an NFT or anything that says I am in the top. 0.01% of listeners of Taylor Swift. And I can take that to the concert and get unique experiences. What's in it for Spotify to issue me verifiable credentials with an open standard rather than just keeping that for themselves and selling my data? <laughs> so I think 
one really exciting part of the future that we're building is that we can enable apps to consider a two-way data marketplace where they are creating a known brand around the data they hand over to users. So if you open your data backpack and you're able to leverage your Spotify listening credential to prove your membership in the in Taylor Swift fandom, you're able to carry that with you to ticketing platforms to get preferred access to tickets, to dating platforms to find people to go out with who will you know come to the concert with you, to um, you know e-commerce and retail platforms that will curate uh, you know looks similar to hers or aesthetics similar to the ones that that Taylor curates herself on um, you know whether it's Tumblr, Pinterest, or whatever. And so being able to easily address the discoverability problem across planes and choose those experiences is best suited to what you're feeling at the time helps to remove a lot of um, friction in uh, in that process and get you more quickly to the adventure that you started off um, seeking in the first place. Got it. So, and the, the first part you said, I forget how you phrased it, but um, basically it's a branding opportunity for Spotify because this, this is a Spotify credential that I'm taking to all of these places. And this is more touch points with that brand if they can create that schema and really brand it for for themselves. Exactly. It's sort of a, a net new um, form of value. So mm-hmm. the more relevant pieces of information about myself um, or, you know, tools or passes that I collect from um, the Spotify ecosystem, then when I go off into the big bad, bad metaverse, how much of my backpack is owned by Spotify, how much retail in the daily set of tools and capabilities that I carry with me is related to the experiences that I have in that app. Mm. And so for some people, um, you know, like me, I love music. Uh, and so music represents a really big portion of my life. And so being able to accrue my experiences across um, Twitter spaces and concerts, album listening parties, and um, pre-saving songs on streaming platforms, listening across streaming platform, sharing content with my friends, um, you know, all these different activities right now aren't necessarily following me to provide a complete picture of my fandom. But even as an individual, as we know with Spotify wrapped, it's pretty awesome to be able to behold the totality of your activity around a specific subject or group organization or brand. Mm -hmm. So uh, to talk about just a slightly different use case for, for us, for content creators, for podcasters, YouTubers, we were playing with this idea of issuing kind of a PO app for guests, right? What is the case to do this via verifiable credentials and not do this with an NFT? So there are a lot of different ways that we can, you know, recognize the contributions and participation of different people in our spaces. Um, I think that verifiable credentials are uniquely well suited here because, as much as I love PO apps, I love to, you know, collect them. Uh, they are kind of like stickers in that they don't say a lot about the person who holds them. And so, if I come into custody of a PO app, that doesn't necessarily mean that I you know, um, that, that it is representative of my experience. So if I have a PO app that says that I was a guest on a show, that doesn't necessarily mean I was a guest on the show. That just means that a given token ID has been mapped to my public key. And that token ID points to URI with a JPEG says that I was a a participant on a given show. So it's sort of a proof of acquisition, if you were, Mm -hmm. when it comes to personal experiences. Um, And especially for something like participating on a show where it's very explicit, there is a known show, you are a known individual. That's the kind of proof that you're going to want to be really proud of carry with you and other parties might rely upon such as, you know, future podcasts that want to see, you know, has she been on a podcast before and having this proof might be relevant to them. So the consequence of the data, I think, um, makes it a little bit more important, which primitive you use. Uh, we think POEPs are, are super awesome and fun and wonderful. Um, but they're also uh, kind of limited to the EVM ecosystem. So if you want to be able to surface this data, um, outside of the EVM ecosystem or in a web two context in a little bit more friendly manner, this might be a good, uh, a good primitive for you to look into. Um, um, so we would love to help you guys set up verifiable credentials for your guests. I um, would be happy to to put that together. We actually already have a guest speaker credential, so it's just a matter uh-huh. of you sticking your sticking your logo on it, and we can get those issued right away. Cool. Yeah, uh, let's do that. That'd be really cool. 
I, I imagine you have hundreds of guest speaker credentials <laughs> in your backpack at this point. <laughs> so we're really excited to um, not only have those guest speaker credentials, but also to allow people to take them to different spaces. So when you apply for um, a speaking engagement, being able to surface all of those credentials, um, or for example, if you're teaching a course um, or leading a workshop, being able to share those credentials of experience with, um, with other folks who are in your community could be really relevant. Yep. I, I wanted to um, pick your brain and just see like how crazy um, disco can get into the future or like how, uh, how like fun, mm -hmm. let's say that word. Um, so level one is like you complete a course, you get, um, you add to your backpack that like, mm -hmm. hey, I completed this, you know, uh, course, I, I have this capability. Level two of kind of complexity is the whole DAO situation where you contribute to a DAO, you can go to another one, and now you have this proof that you've done this work. What are like, what's level three or four or five, like something that isn't applicable yet in today's kind of world and state of Web3, but you can foresee into the future? Um, that's just kind of mind blowing. So a fun example that um, a lot of friends like to talk about when we think about discoverability is Disco is the basis for a dating app. So, you know, at the end of the day, being able to identify a subset of your data and the compatibility or fitness or, you know, similarity of that data to someone else's, being able to compare the same part of different data backpacks um, in a trust-minimized way without a centralized authority, uh, you know, taking advantage of that data and reselling it, et cetera, um, that's got the basis for discoverability of human beings, being able to find one another. Um, and so that also invites us to explore things like secure computation over that data in an encrypted form. That also invites us to you know, contemplate how do we even define these preferences? What does it mean for me to hold on to copies of my preferences and to allow those for, um, you know, for secure computation to, you know, find other people? Um, now, whether that's finding friends to go skiing, finding someone to go out with on Saturday night, or finding co-panelists for an event, there are a lot of different ways that we can imagine human-to-human -human discoverability um, can provide um, a lot of new, uh, a lot of new openings, or open a lot of new doors, rather, for us in this community. Mm -hmm. So last question, just because that popped up there mm -hmm. when you said that, do, um, so like as an app developer, if I utilize the verifiable credentials from the data backpack, do I have visibility into that specific data or is it obfuscated? So right now we're playing with the spectrum of privacy and publicity that we can achieve mm -hmm. between data that's encrypted and known only to your keys and data that's public for everyone on Earth and in space with an internet connection on a public ledger. Uh, so some of the ways that we can explore that um, includes uh, decrypting data only at the app layer for the end user. Um, so mm -hmm. there are a variety of different ways also that we can compute upon data and learn something about it without revealing its plain text. Um, and so that sort of gets a little bit more into the math and magic of cryptography. Some ZKs. Um, and so exactly, yes, it's just sprinkle some ZKs on it. That's like the yeah. vibe this week. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so sort of that whole like area of the universe is what allows us to examine, um, you know, more end user privacy preservation while still enjoying the same level of data availability and persistence that we would enjoy from otherwise clearly accessible data in a local database. Love it. Well, Evan. This was a blast. We learned so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Anytime. I'll see you guys in the metaverse.